MSW Media. Trump spent the last two years bashing the FBI. Now the DOJ is preparing to indict former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. And news reports suggest the FBI investigation of Supreme Court Justice Brent Kavanaugh was curtailed. Will the FBI ever be the same? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I have to say, there's been a lot going on this week, um, and I think I should probably just get our guest in because absolutely we can. Because she knows the stuff. She's got the she's got the goods, man. Yeah, she's uh, she knows uh, more than either of us do about this topic. So now I'd like to bring in our guest, Asha Rangappa. Uh, many of you know her because she is a CNN legal and national security analyst. She also was an FBI counterintelligence agent uh, for a number of years. And, of course, she's also a professor at Yale University, and she is our number one most popular guest on On Topic by, based on your listener survey. Welcome back to, our, uh, to the podcast, Asha. Thank you so much, Renato. Okay, so, you know, it, it was interesting. You and I, I think, discussed some different topics for this week. And, you know, what I, I, you know, what I think but we're going to talk about today is something that touches on a number of different stories that we've heard recently, which is sort of how the, the FBI and its image and its perception by the public has been eroded in recent years. Because this week we've, of course, had the news that the the um, investigation of Kavanaugh was curtailed, um, and it appears that FBI agents weren't didn't interview many of the people who were you know witnesses to um, alleged incidents involving uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and then in addition to that, um, we also have heard that it looks like the DOJ is preparing to indict Andrew McCabe, and of course this comes right after two years of Donald Trump um, attacking the FBI. I'm curious as an FBI agent. A former FBI agent, what is your reaction to you know the events of this week and and uh, and more? Well, I mean, I think you know they're they're two very different um, events, and I think we should probably maybe tackle them one by one. Um, de- definitely, both of them involve the FBI. I think the Kavanaugh situation in particular has you know caused a lot of people to be circumspect about the FBI. I think in this case it's not warranted, um, and trust me, like I was uh, following that confirmation very closely. I really wanted the FBI to investigate thoroughly, but I think that it's important to kind of spell out the kind of investigation the FBI was doing in the Kavanaugh case uh, versus what they might normally do, and I'm happy to walk through that. Um, on the McCabe piece, I think what's unusual there is that you are talking about a criminal consequence of what was an internal investigation. Um, And I 
I'm fortunate to have to not have a lot of personal experience with those kinds of internal investigations, but my understanding from the people who do know more about them is that this kind of criminal consequence, um, even for something as serious as lack of candor in an internal investigation, is very unusual. So I think that there are some you know serious concerns uh, that that people should have about the independence um, of the Department of Justice in terms of their decision to to move forward on on that front. I think that's a great sort of intro into this whole um, into this whole uh, discussion and episode today. I think it is. Let's start by um, talking a little bit about the Kavanaugh case. And and the reason I think these two things tie together, Asha, is that you know for a long time the FBI has been held in such high esteem, not only within the law enforcement and legal community. I, I think anybody in law enforcement will tell you that they're the premier. You know, investigative agency in the United States, and and I, th- I think we would view it the world. Um, but it, it's it, you know the you know because of that uh, imprimatur that an FBI investigation has, that's the reason that the this limited review that was done of these incidents um, carried so much weight because the FBI was involved. And yet, on the other hand, we've had. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of attacks on the FBI uh, recently. I, I, and I guess maybe why don't we start by, I know, that Patty, there's a question that a lot of the listeners have, and they put it in a way I never would. But it gives you a sense of, I think, Asha, how the public views what happened with Kavanaugh. And I, and I want you to set the record straight on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the question is, what would cause the decent people of the FBI. I mean, this is where people are, feel, are obviously feeling passionate and upset. Uh-huh. You know, we all watch those hearings. We all watch how much Kavanaugh loved beer. <laughs> and uh, and they want to know what would cause the decent people of the FBI to not fully investigate all the info on Kavanaugh and agree to essentially bury the evidence against their off, oath. Of okay, office. and that's a great question. <laughs> so I think that what people have in mind with the FBI, as they should, is that the FBI is a very thorough organization. They leave no stone uncovered, um, unturned, I guess. Uh, And, you know, we saw that, for example, in in the Mueller report. Um, What people need to understand is the difference between criminal investigations and background checks. Um, Criminal investigations or counterintelligence investigations are pursued by squads um, within the FBI, squads that are either assigned to investigate particular violations or in the counterintelligence division where where I was, uh, particular targets, uh, foreign countries. Um, And they have essentially wide latitude under the statutes of the United States and the Attorney General guidelines to essentially pursue any suspected violation of these laws or national security threats to their logical conclusion. Background checks, by contrast, are done out of the administrative division of the FBI. They are not done pursuant to, you know, the U.S. Code <laughs> or, or something like that. Um, so, so they're essentially um, administrative investigations. Now, when people do, when when people take a job in the federal government. Um, the FBI will often conduct the background check to make sure uh, that they are suitable for the appropriate security clearance. Now, within uh, certain agencies, and, you know, I don't know all of the details, but, I mean, obviously, say, within the FBI, 
The FBI does a background check. The FBI adjudicates the results of that background check to determine whether or not to grant the person that clearance. But when they are doing it for another agency or for uh, the White House, um, they are there to collect the information and the ultimate, and, and they basically hand it over to that entity, uh, in this case the White House, to make the adjudication to determine whether this person is uh, suitable to have a background check. You can you can stop me anytime. Oh no, this is I'm learning. So I'm like, it's like Professor it's Professor Asha in action. So I'm just asking questions like a student. But keep going, keep going. Yeah. So you know, um, as you know, Renato, uh, you know, I worked at Yale Law School for a long time, um, and uh, I'm still at Yale. A lot of our uh, you know classmates. Uh, former students that I admitted to the law school or to, you know, the program where I work at Yale, um, seek government jobs. So I now uh, meet with agents who do background checks quite often. So, you know, I was able during the Kavanaugh hearings to kind of pick their brain off. And, and at least in some of these kind of routine background checks, um, they are retired agents who are doing this. Um, so my understanding is that when a person first seeks a federal position, there is a full field background check. They go back to, you know, all the places that you've lived, um, and they'll go back and they'll, they'll check, uh, you know, they'll talk to people that knew you in those jobs and those places that you've lived. Um, and background checks typically involve, you know, I, I call it expanding circles. So when you apply for a job, you'll say, okay, talk to these, you know, five or seven people. Um, and the FBI will go talk to them. But what they'll do is when they talk to them, they'll say, hey, can you give me the names of two or three people who might know this person that I can talk to? And so what they want to do is get two or three degrees outside of who you recommended because presumably the people that you've recommended are going to all say good things about you. Um, after that initial job, like once you get that clearance, um, you may undergo another background check for subsequent jobs. But those checks will only go back 10 years, okay? Now, I don't have Kavanaugh's resume in front of me, but um, I believe that his first background check would have occurred fairly soon after he graduated from law school, maybe when he worked, went, went to work for uh, Kenneth Starr, or, or maybe he was at Department of Justice before that. But that's the time that they would have interviewed people from, that he might have known in college, for example. After that, you know, when he became a judge, like all of these things, they would have gone back only 10 years from whatever point he was getting that uh, check. So they may not have gone back to that, those college years at that point if that was outside of that uh, time frame. Now, when he was nominated for the Supreme Court, that's the kind of check that he would have had. They would have gone back 10 years from that point, Okay. Um, so obviously it would not have covered his college um, years. Um, now, that background check was completed by the time, you know, he was set for his confirmation hearing and these allegations from Dr. Ford came up. And at that point, you know, the, whatever they had uncovered in, in that re-background check had been handed over to the White House. It was then at the discretion of the... Uh, you know, adjudicator, the, the outside entity, in this case the White House, to ask for a supplemental background check. Like there's this 
additional kind of specific issue that has come up that we want you to look at. And my understanding is that they could, that the White House had the power to determine the scope of that piece of that, that supplemental background check. And that is the question that we need to know, is what was the scope? Because unlike in a criminal or counterintelligence investigation where, you know, I mean, you work with agents, uh, Renato, like you come up with something and it's like, go, go dig further on this, like find out what you know. They don't have that kind of independent authority in this kind of situation where there is a request being made for an administrative you know, investigation on a specific issue, perhaps with certain parameters and maybe even very strict parameters. We don't know about witnesses that they could interview or not interview. Now, obviously, if they came across like a violation of the law, like, you know, if they came across a meth lab or something like that in the course of, <laughs> you know, interviewing people that could then spin off into its own criminal investigation. But I mean, that's, you know, not something that happened here. Um, so that is why it was limited in this case, and that's why the FBI would not have had the independent discretion um, to to pursue every possible lead the way that it would uh, in a in a criminal in a normal investigation on the criminal counterintelligence side or national security side, or even in kind of a a full field background check that you might do initially uh, to determine somebody's suitability for public service. Right. I mean, I think in my view on this is that the reason that this was done, the sort of compromise uh, was brokered uh, where they were able to have an FBI background check, um, you know, or a supplemental check is essentially it allowed, uh, you know, folks who wanted to vote for Kavanaugh to have sort of this cloak of having the FBI bless it. But it appears that they put significant constraints on that such that there there couldn't be really any sort of fulsome investigation of those allegations. And so, you know, the public got the impression, oh, the FBI looked into it, when in fact it was this sort of limited process that, that you just described. And really, even the even today, the public, I think, is is fooled on that point. I think that's right. I mean, I think that these uh, senators, the White House, took advantage of the public perception of the FBI doing incredibly thorough investigations, of not leaving any stone unturned, and then saying, hey, look, the FBI looked into this. They didn't find anything corroborating. We're done. And they basically pulled a sleight of hand in doing that because, as I just explained, um, this is not a situation where the, the FBI would have really had the latitude to do what they would in a normal criminal investigation. And, and to be clear, you know, as serious as Dr. Ford's allegations were, or even Debbie Ramirez's allegations were, they did not constitute on their face Correct. a violation of federal law that could be investigated as a criminal matter, for example. Um, so, you know, they, they, they were kind of beholden to what was the request being made by this outside entity um, in terms of what information uh, was needed to make the final adjudication on on his um, suitability. Okay, so I think what people want is justice. So that's the problem here, right? Is that it's outside the sort of uh, scope of what the FBI can ap- accomplish in this circumstance. So the, the, there really isn't anything that could have been done. I mean, people watched Dr. Ford, mm-hmm. felt for her, 
and and uh, they wanted the FBI. What we want is the de- Department of Justice or the FBI to go. You're absolutely right. Here, you know, this you were wronged, and there's no reason why this person should be a Supreme Court justice. And and we'll never be able to sort of rectify that. I think. Well, uh, you know, I, I just would say a couple things. I mean, one is. And that may be an unrealistic expectation that we all have. In other words, uh, you know, the, it's certainly possible the FBI could have interviewed somebody who was like, oh, well, actually, you know, whatever. I mean, in even this limited scope. But I think that the reality of the situation is that this was a bunch of senators who were making that decision. And, you know, ultimately, you know, the, it would have taken, I think, a very full, full-blown investigation that would have taken some time to get to the bottom of this. Uh, what do you think, Asha? Yeah, I mean, I think you would have needed to go and, you know, I mean, look, they didn't even interview now Justice Kavanaugh um, or Dr. Ford, which is kind of the most basic thing that you would do in this kind of investigation. That's Um, where you might start start around, yeah. I think, you know, you might start there and then you would say, like, who are the people that can corroborate your version, right? And then you kind of go outwards from there. Yeah. who, what was their witness list? What were they uh, authorized to, um, to investigate? And, you know, remember, again, you've seen FBI files, Renato. I mean, basically, it, this would have been, constituted a number of 302s. So 302s are testimonial documents that record interviews, um, you know, in writing after they've occurred. Not well, you know, they don't tape them. But um, afterwards, the agents who conducted them would have done it. Um, Typically, in background checks from what the people who conduct them tell me, they only record anything that is derogatory, meaning anything that raises a red flag. Um, It's possible in the supplemental check, they just recorded everything. I'm sure they did for just the sake of thoroughness. But ultimately, again, it's it's handed off. They don't create some kind of report. from my understanding, for an outside agency, I don't know that they even necessarily do their own recommendation. They just say, here are all the things and here's all the derogatory information that we uncovered. Um, and here, you know, for you to make your decision. And so we place a lot of trust ultimately in the White House to make that judgment. And we've seen in other cases that they have not you know, exercise the best judgment. I mean, they've over they they've ignored red flags for a number of people who have gotten background, who have gotten security clearances and things like that. So it's not a shocker that they would have shrugged their shoulders even if something came up. But you know, there's not some kind of Mueller report equivalent that the FBI would have provided uh, to to the White House, as far as I'm aware, in this kind of situation. Yeah, I think that's right. I have to say, though, um, there is a great irony here that people who have been tearing down the Justice Department and FBI and saying that the FBI has got this rotten, deep state you know, agenda are now essentially wrapped themselves around the FBI for purposes of getting this passage in this particular circumstance. Well, exactly. And I mean, you would think that if there was this deep state cabal that they would have gone rogue and just, you know, interviewed everybody <laughs> they possibly could. But they didn't. I mean, they follow the rules, you know. Um, what I do think, you know, what the FBI is good at, um, and I mentioned this at the time uh, when I was doing some of my commentary, is that they're good at keeping records <laughs> and, <laughs> and writing memos about, you know, orders that they're getting from, you know, outside places. So to the extent that there were 
uh, parameters placed on the investigation that would be in the file um, or recorded somewhere. And I would assume that the, you know, judiciary committees would be able to at least try in today's circumstances uh-huh. uh, to to get that. So, you know, and I, I think that that amount of transparency is probably fair just to know, like, okay, we can't review the entire 500-plus page, as, as is reported, uh, you know, background check file and read every 302, but we, we ought to know who they were allowed to interview and who was off limits or what, what was said to them in terms of conducting the supplemental background check. I have to say it's really uh, stunning that that didn't come out at the time. In other words, it should the senators involved on the Democratic side should have been really pressing as to what was permitted in that supplemental check and made the public aware of that. They should have, and what's really puzzling is that um, I believe Trump at the time tweeted that they were allowed free reign or something like that. And what we know from the most recent reporting is that's simply not true. I mean, unless you're just alleging— Hold, hold on, Asha. Are you saying Donald Trump lied? Are you kidding? <laughs> I know it's a bold claim. It's a very bold claim. No, the and bold would claim the one... would be he told the truth. That would be a bold claim. <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, unless, you know, you're suggesting that, you know, however many dozens of agents were just grossly negligent, which, as you know, Renato, is simply not in their DNA. Um, yeah. And, and, and didn't follow up on leads or something. Right. Um, you know, I think that the individual 302s would probably lay out uh, additional leads that they could have followed but but didn't. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a what I, what I think is ultimately sad. Uh, I mean, this is sad on so many dimensions and, and not just for the, you know, the, the victims here, um, is that, you know, I, I think that it really would have been in Justice Kavanaugh's interest for there to be, for there to have been a an unfettered investigation. Because let's face it, he would have been confirmed anyway. And then, you know, then there's no, there's none of this, you know, um, there was still evidence and, you know, impe- like he's, he's now, his, that, that limited background check has now not only impugned his credibility, but that of the entire court. And when we're at a time when our institutions are under siege, I really think, you know, it's one thing to, you know, hate the Supreme Court because you disagree with their opinions or, you know, judicial philosophies. It's another to to believe that there are people who are simply, you know, dishonest or, or got on the court through a sham process. Um, and I'm a process person. I, I think that the process needs to be thorough. And if the Senate wanted to confirm it anyway, then it's on them. Um, but, be, but I have a question, though, because, you know, in, in regards to the Supreme Court and in contrast to any other, you know, whether it's the Department of Justice or the FBI, the Supreme Court, those are lifetime appointments. So, I mean, whether or not we have sort of suspicions or, you know, a cynicism when it comes to the Supreme Court, it doesn't really make a difference on what people's attitudes are because for my entire life, it's just been that way. I mean, I, you know, I was uh, in college when Clarence Thomas was, uh, you know, 
was uh, elevated to the Supreme Court. And, you know, here we are. When we talk about it, we laugh about it. And, you know, we talk about Coke cans with pubic hairs on it. And uh, and here it, there's nothing really matters, it feels like, to a lot of people. It doesn't diminish my opinion of the Supreme Court. We also have rock stars like uh, RBG. I mean, I think I think that the Clarence Thomas hearings, and I, I remember those very well. We watched those, like, in my social studies class in high school, you know? <laughs> like, it was crazy. That was, like, part of our education. Okay, um, I just got older than both of you, apparently. <laughs> what? <laughs> but, I was in college. But, you know, I mean, he he, he definitely, you know, I, did, I do think he struck a blow to the credibility. But, I mean, at least, at, like, now at this point, it's two justices. There are not that many. There's, there's nine of them. Um, and, you know, it's, just having that institutional credibility is just so important at this at this time. Um, and I have to say, I think even with Clarence Thomas and Renata, you might have a better memory of this than I did. I believe that there wasn't there an additional background check with him as well. There was another witness too, and they were scared away from uh, testifying, wasn't there? All right, let's stop. I'm going to stop <laughs> no, but, speculating. No, 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 but here no, but here's the thing. Okay. And, and to this point is that, you know, the, I always have felt like the Supreme Court operates in this bubble of like nothing, like the, you know, everything rolls off of them, you know, regardless of what mm-hmm. stories we tell or the uh, the lingering sort of suspicions. Well, to to bring this back to our original topic, all all are, you know, that's the same thing with the FBI. In other words, there's been all these attacks by Trump, the president of the United States, over the last couple of years, and not just him, but all of his surrogates, the Fox News hosts, people in Congress, Republicans in Congress, have all been attacking the FBI. But when we need someone to investigate something, everyone places all this trust and sort of wraps their arms around the FBI because no matter what is said, everyone agrees that the FBI is the premier law enforcement agency in the United States. And they're pretty cool. They just look great. Well, Asha clearly <laughs> is one of them, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I would say to just kind of compare the, the Clarence Thomas, I mean, I don't recall there being questions about the the airing of the allegations or the process. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, he was confirmed and um, people objected to that. But this this really creates issues surrounding transparency and and i as i said before there's been a sleight of hand there's been a complete displacement of all responsibility uh to the fbi without fully explaining that this is a different kind of investigation in which they were not at liberty to do the kind of investigating that they that people in their in the popular imagination um believe that they do yeah, I think that's a, I think that's my view as well. And to to switch gears a little bit to McCabe, you know, here this I think this is a really interesting case where aside from I have a lot of thoughts as somebody who uh, investigated and prosecuted cases, I have a lot of thoughts about sort of the quality of their evidence or their lack thereof in that particular case to bring and sustain a, con- a conviction, bring a case and sustain a conviction. But aside from that, one thing I find interesting about it is that usually when people are charged for lying to the FBI, it's in the course of, a, of an investigation of other conduct, criminal conduct, and the person knows that it's really important to tell the truth to the FBI because, you know, they're under investigation in a criminal matter. Here, you know, when you read the OIG report, there's all these instances, but some of it's like, okay, he was the deputy director. He's talking to his boss, the director, Comey, 
And he's saying, well, he wasn't candid with Comey. It's sort of like saying, you know, at work, if I'm not, uh, you know, it's like if you're not being honest to one of your colleagues, you could potentially be charged with a felony. It's a little weird. It's very weird. You know, look, I mean, I'm not giving McCabe a pass here. I mean, one thing that's drilled into you and the FBI is whatever happens, no matter what you get, and they call it getting jammed up um, when, when you get you know, caught up in an internal investigation. When you get jammed up, do not lie um, because, you know, the FBI can be very, you know, they're, they're harsh, but they can be forgiving, but they will not be forgiving for a lack of candor. It's like the worst sin in the FBI um, to lie. Um, and so, you know, um, you know, if, if he did lie to, you know, the internal investigators, now this, just, just for your listeners, this would have been, um, because I know there's a lot of talk about the IG, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, that's not what this was. This was an FBI OPR investigation. OPR is the Office of Professional Responsibility, and they investigate any transgression by any agent um, at whatever level. So it could be you misused your view car by, you know, going more than one mile out of your way to, you know, stop at the drugstore on the way home. Um, you know, you fudged your timesheet by 15 minutes. Um, or it could be you were, you know, illegally searching somebody on, in the FBI database or you were watching porn or whatever it was. Um, so they investigate all of these things. It's a huge, uh, it is a big deal in the FBI to get an OPR investigation. Everything gets frozen, you can't get promoted, all these things. Um, but I will say that the difference is that, you know, in this kind of internal investigation, the people doing the investigating have broad latitude to just say, okay, I don't believe your version of events, I believe James Comey, or whatever, where, where, you know, wherever the he said, she said. That is a far cry from proving in front of a jury that someone intentionally lied about a material fact, um, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that's why you very rarely see this, because the threshold for misconduct internally is much lower than the standard for criminal conviction, as, as, which is what you're saying, Renato. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, he, there's four different instances of lying that are that are discussed in the OIG report. The first was him... Not, you know, they call it, as you call it, uh, Asha, lack of candor, um, you know, lack of candor towards Comey, then towards, as you point this internal investigation, these people speaking with him, and then towards the very end when he's interviewed the last time there's a recorded uh, interview. And of the four statements uh, that that are allegedly false, only one of them is recorded. That's the last one. And as to that last recorded statement, he like reached back out to the person a few days later and corrected it exactly. and said, you know, yeah, I've been thinking about this and it's, and it's, it's not right. And I want to make sure I'm accurate. And you can only imagine, I will just tell you somebody who tries cases uh, on behalf of people accused by crimes occasionally. Uh, you can imagine a jury is not going to like this as a criminal case for, to me, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one is, First of all, this is not like some hoodlum from a street gang. Uh, this is a guy who's had a career in law enforcement, has no criminal history, is going to go up there and testify and say, look, I've been serving the public my entire career. He's, you know, as to these some of these earlier uh, versions of statements, it's a he said, he said there, which is hard to yep. for, for, that, for, for that to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And then as to the last statement, he like corrected it later. And it's like, man, you're going to send the guy to for prison to prison for getting it wrong, you know, off the cuff the first time. Like, well, and that's my question for you, because you've prosecuted these cases. Like, it seems to me that you would have a big problem proving the intent piece of it. Um, when, when, you know, some, when the defense lawyers come and say, look, he literally went back and tried to correct the record. Like it does cast doubt on an idea that he was intentionally trying to mislead um, the investigators. That, that's right. And so, you know, here you exactly right. So one thing I want everyone to, to understand is to prove that somebody made a false statement to the FBI and by the way, this is the same thing that they would have to prove if, uh, to prove a false statement to Congress. You have to prove that the person knowingly and willfully made a false statement. In other words, that they were deliberately lying in order to deceive the other person. And this, by the way, just to look at the flip side of it, um, a lot of times people ask me these questions like, why isn't Jeff Sessions being prosecuted? Or maybe this week, why isn't Corey Lewandowski being prosecuted? Or so on or so forth. And often it's because they'll say things that, are, are inaccurate or false, whatever, but it can be difficult based on exactly how the question's worded and how the answer's worded in the context to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is knowingly and willfully, you know, deceiving the, either it's the FBI or Congress. And here, I mean, the, the, the issue here is, you know, the, the first statement is a he said, he said between him and Comey, and they have very different versions of events. But, of course, Comey's the guy uh, who's been attacked by the president of the United States is lying in Comey. Um, it's it's not unreasonable to think you might find one juror who thinks that Comey's not entirely accurate uh, in his account. And it's just a he said, he said. Then you got these other events. And what, what McCabe says about one of them is like, look, they came up to me at the very end. They were kind of approaching me in an event, and I didn't realize it was a big deal. I was just having an off-the-cuff off conversation on the way to something else and they 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 characterize it differently but you know he doesn't really have a great recollection of it and it's 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 just it's not the sort of thing that i think juries are looking for before they send a, i think a particularly a career law enforcement person to prison and then we have that correction with the last one so i don't know altogether yeah, and just and and just to give a, a contrast like with michael flynn for example who was convicted for making false statements um, you know, the the FBI had actual intercepts of his actual conversations so that when he says the exact opposite to the FBI agents in an interview about what, what happened in those conversations, and they even jog his memory and kind of try to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, do you want to, do you remember talking about X, Y, Z, you know, and kind of saying even verbatim what he said. Um, and he says, no, you have more of a case. Um, here, as you just said, Renato, they, they, there's no, um, you know, undisputed piece of evidence to show that he clearly knew he was lying at the moment that he said, that he made those statements. Um, and so I think it, this comes to, you know, what you alluded to when we began the show, which is, you know, it starts to cast doubt on why is the Department of Justice trying to pursue this case? Um, it does not seem like not only is this unusual in terms of how um, internal investigations normally end up, even in lack of candor cases, especially ones where there has been such a uh, punitive um, outcome. I mean, McKay was fired, right? And, Lost his you know, pension, gonna, yeah. 
laws of his pension, you know, all this stuff, which I assume would also come out in front of a jury. who would be like, Look, what are you trying to do to this guy? Um, right. But you have, you know, this ongoing vendetta by the president um, about, you know, that he needs to go to jail, that he's, you know, needs to be prosecuted. And you tell me or not, if I were a defense lawyer, those those tweets would be, you know, exhibit A for me. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I mean, what I would be doing, this whole trial uh, would be a total circus with me saying, you know, Comey is, I would portray Comey as this guy. I mean, even I'm not saying this is accurate, but it's like, look, there's widespread agreement across the aisle that you can't count on Comey and he's got his own political agenda and he's saying whatever he's going to say, right? That would be, I think, the argument there. He's going to, he's trying to look out for himself or something. And then as to the rest, it's like the whole thing is a vendetta by Trump. And there, this would be a, a jury in the District of Columbia that I think voted very heavily against Trump. I don't know. It seems to me like you could find one person out of 12 in that jury that would be like, you know, this is probably Trump coming up with something against McCabe and deciding not to send that guy to prison. That's just Not to mention that Trump himself called Comey like Lion James Comey. Right. No, it's just the whole thing is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't <laughs> it's know. It's ridiculous. So, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I the only thing I can think of is, you know, and I, I think that this is true across so many of the, you know, shenanigans and just, I, I don't even know how to describe, just like the crazy cakes, like, you know, things that we're seeing with the tax returns and that was DNI whistleblower and all this stuff. There must be just so much pressure with this administration to somehow reach or to please the president in some way. Like the only explanation I can come up with is they need they, they need to, you know, get Trump to shut up by like bringing this case. Like, I don't know, um, because he's just not going to let it go. Yeah, I have to say, I, so I I'm I know the United States Attorney in the District of Columbia, Jesse Liu. She was, um, I think, a year ahead of me in law school. I don't know if she was your year or not. We are for everyone who doesn't know, Yash and I uh, were law school contemporaries, and um, you know, she's a very capable and and reasonable and intelligent person. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if what's happened is the Justice Department is is indicated whether it's the Deputy Attorney General or Attorney General that they think that McCabe should be prosecuted. And and I think perhaps you know the reasoning in that office is that well, if there's a righteous case to bring, we'll bring it. You know, in other words, if we have the proof and we think we can prove the case, we'll do it. But I have to say, I mean, I'd say two things. I mean, first, I don't think they have it. I mean, just from from what I see, unless they have something behind the scenes, they got some killer evidence that's not in the OIG report, which I doubt because, the, you know, the OIG reports came out recently and they interviewed everybody that mattered. There's not much to this uh, case uh, that you would that you could imagine uh, finding else uh, in another venue. Um, you know, I don't think they have it. But even aside from that, you know, prosecutors are supposed to exercise judgment. And part of that is deciding whether or not, even if you can prosecute somebody, whether it is the right thing to do. And, you know, one of the, the there was a quote that Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson, had about federal prosecutors and how it's important to, to have a sense of fair play instead of somebody just trying to get a conviction at all costs. And that was something that influenced me a lot when I was a federal prosecutor. And I think that, you know, th- th- if if this really does get pursued, regardless of even if they were able to make a conviction, I, it doesn't seem like the right kind of case for them to be bringing, in my opinion. Well, you know, Renato, weren't there two 
prosecutors, maybe at Maine Justice, who walked off. Yeah, there are two prosecutors who've left the case, and I will say that's unusual because, you know, then this may not be a surprise to our listeners that prosecutors really like handling high-profile cases. And so if you've got a case like this, usually you end, you wait until the case is indicted or tried before you leave. Not always. I mean, maybe you have things that happen in your life. You know, you have to move or you have a kid or, you know, things happen. But, you know, it's very unusual that you have two people leave from that, that, that team, which might only have three or four attorneys on it at most. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's kind of a clue. Um, that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a clue. We have the our former FBI agent, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am suspicious, and and I mean, Renato, like it does. There doesn't seem to be a lot of upsides for the administration in pursuing this either. Yeah, I don't I don't see it either. Yeah, I mean other than just a vendetta or something, they've already kind of ruined the guy's life. Uh, you know, and he's he's sort of left in disgrace to the FBI. He got fired and he's he has his lawsuit to try to get his pension back, uh which he very well may get back. I don't know. I have no knowledge of the merits of that case or not, but you know, the the guy is already in a tough spot. I mean, th- this is the sort of thing you do. I mean, you have to think when you're devoting significant federal resources <clears throat> to prosecute a case, why are we prosecuting it? And the only argument I could think of for going after this guy is, well, we need to set an example. And, you know, we no one is above the law and we need to go after anyone who lies. I think that's fair. I think, you know, that, that an argument could be made for that. But not when the case is like so thin. And, you know, if it was an overwhelming case, like you had recordings, like you mentioned with Michael Flynn, it's a different story. Uh, to me, because then he's it's just the guy's either going to plead guilty or he's going to lose. And it, it's you can just, you know, throw the tapes in evidence and that's it. And one last detail, because I just think that this has gotten lost so much. And correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, I've been reading so many different IG reports and statutes and stuff that I, I want to make sure that I'm right. My recollection, the substantive piece of this entire thing, the whole, you know, internal investigation was about whether. McCabe made an unauthorized disclosure to the media about something involving Hillary Clinton that ultimately was beneficial to Trump in terms of, you know, in other words, it was kind of uh, harmful information about what they were investigating about Hillary um, that made its way into the media. Like, in other words, it wasn't even anything that... uh, you know, cast any aspersions on Trump himself, I guess is my point. Well, that's right. I mean, what what it was is that essentially there was an article, there was some, uh, there was basically a leak that McCabe made that sort of pointed a finger, you know, cast aspersions at DOJ. Um, but, you know, that kind of created a bit of a rift between FBI and DOJ, effectively. It had nothing to do with Trump at all. That's correct. I mean, it's really this is, you know, now to be fair about it, conservatives have have attacked a lot of the Mueller investigation charges as, quote, process crimes. This isn't, you know, a process crime. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so to me, you know, like I said, I don't really have a problem in and of itself with a process crime. And I'll give you an example of a process crime that was used to for a particular result that I have some experience with. You know, I was a federal prosecutor when my office prosecuted Dennis Hastert. 
Um, and Dennis Hastert was prosecuted, who is the Speaker of the House. Uh, he had um, sexual relationship uh, with uh, with young with children with uh, underage uh, underage uh, underage boys, and you they the statute of limitations had expired, and so the pro- and so the office was only able to prosecute him for lying to the FBI, and they deliberately got the uh, had the FBI go in there with a recording device to make sure that they had his statements in on tape and they you know they had like they could ask him questions and make sure it was pinned down so this way they had a a federal crime to charge on that um i that's a process crime but you can understand the reasoning behind it um and you could have a, a, a less obvious or a less egregious case might be whether it's michael flynn or another case where you you can readily prove that something is false and that and there's some other concerning conduct by the person and that's the most readily provable charge Right. So can I, can I ask one last question? Cause, um, of course. Would, so there was this, you know, kind of uh, reporting or the letter that was written by McCabe's lawyers to the Department of Justice that somehow insinuated that the grand jury had convened. Right. And decided not to indict McCabe, which would be incredibly damning. Um, but it wasn't clear to me whether that was just a an interpretation of known facts um, and what you thought of that. Great question, because I didn't comment on that. Uh, for our listeners, I've been very busy preparing my own case uh, in, in for a client, so I have been a little uh, uh, out of commission uh, for the last two or three weeks. Um, but what I will say uh, on that, a couple things. First of all, one tweet I did make is I, I think I said I had never had a jury decline uh, to prosecute a case I presented. Because the standard is very low, right? This is probable cause that this person may have violated the law. No, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just, okay, you presented me enough that there's, some, there's a bear there. Go forward. Yeah, it's it's actually and it's and it's really I t- to me that's part of it. It's actually the intersection of two things, Asha. One is that as you said, the standard is low. Is probable cause is just is there a good reason to believe the person did it as opposed to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But in not so you have that. That's one part of it. The other part of it is you don't bring a case to the grand jury unless you want an indictment that puts you in a position where the, the justice manual says you have to believe that you have a, the, a, you know, the, a reasonable probability of getting a conviction. So the prosecutor has to believe that they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So for a grand jury, to, it to, and they don't even have to unanimously vote, for a grand jury to you know, uh, not return an indictment means they don't, they don't believe you have enough evidence by a much lower standard than the prosecutor believes. So, you know, that never happened to me and I wasn't bragging. That's just like normal. I, I don't think it happened very, very, very rarely. I mean, out of an office of 165 or so criminal prosecutors, that may have happened in my entire decade, you know, maybe. I think the statistics are like there were like five out of like a couple hundred thousand or something last year or something like that. I mean, it was infinitesimally small. Right. I mean, it happened maybe once or twice to somebody out of that decade. I mean, it's just it's the sort of thing that just almost never happens. So but was that a reasonable interpretation from his defense attorneys, from what we know? 
Yes. So the answer is I don't think so. In fact, I think as I read it, what I took is that they were the press had misinterpreted what the data what the data was out there, and they just were repeating the press's accounts to sort of put pressure on the prosecutors and jab them a little bit. Okay. So you don't you don't think they've actually presented it to a grand jury yet? Well, yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I think what what the what the press was quoting was a grand jury expired without returning an indictment. And what that just means is, you know, grand juries have a particular term of X number of months. When you're done, you have to make a decision as a prosecutor. Do you, when they're, when they're coming up for the end, do you present an indictment and try to get an indictment return? Or do you start all over with a new grand jury and represent the same evidence to the new grand jury? And, you know, that is, takes time and so on. And so prosecutors often like to wrap it up uh, before having to do that again. And the fact that they didn't wrap it up it could suggest that despite all of the bluster that they're having second thoughts, it's it's not entirely clear. Okay. I, I have to say, uh, Asha, w- w- um, you know, my take on all of this is that it's it's disheartening to someone like me who really respects and, and treasures, you know, the FBI and the Justice Department and the work that they do. It's part of the thing that really motivated me to, to start speaking out on a lot of these issues in the first place. And to me... This week just underscored a problem that I think you and I have talked about a lot over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think um, I, I have to agree with you, and it's it's yeah, it's terrible because I think you know the FBI becomes so integral to so many of these different issues that that come up, um, and you know mis misfeasance or whatever by by other parties can end up you know, I think in many cases wrongly implicating um, the entire bureau, which, by the way, let's just remember, it's 36,000 employees, about 14,000 agents. Like, it's it's a large organization, um, you know, and, and we're, we're focused on kind of these few individuals or like a unique particular kind of investigation, for example. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. Because, I mean, it as really you know, is. as you know, Renato, the, the, and what I would just close by saying is that, you know, one of the things that they tell you in the FBI is um, perception is reality. Uh, so, you know, how the public perceives the FBI really affects their day-to-day work. Uh, you know, FBI agents, the bread and butter of their investigations is knocking on doors and getting information from people. And people need to trust the FBI to do that. And not just for, you know, the Russia investigation. That's like one investigation. I mean, we're talking about, you know, child trafficking cases. We're talking about corruption and, you know, violent crime. And when people stop trusting the FBI, they, you know, they slam doors in the face of people. And and juries don't believe them when they get on the stand. It has much broader repercussions beyond whatever, you know, political narrative that you might have uh, in a very narrow setting. I agree. And really what you're saying, Asha, is that all of this is hampering the ability of the FBI to do its job, which is to keep us safe and and to investigate very serious crimes. And that's really unfortunate. And I think all, you know, I think all of us are hoping that in the years to come uh, that this trend is going to change. Thank you so much for joining us, Asha. You are awesome. And it is always a pleasure to talk with you. It's always a pleasure to be on, and I'm I'm glad to offer whatever insight I can to these to these crazy times. Indeed.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. We'll be right back.